church and invite you to stand together. We're going to conclude our series on the Christian vocation today out of Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, with a message I call, uh, Could You Be My Neighbor? Yeah, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> Would you be? Could you be? Maybe so. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And may God bless the reading of his word today. As my prayer, you may be seated. Our job, our occupation, our calling as Christians is where Ephesians 4 begins. Walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And it calls us to be a people who endeavor, who work very hard at keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Knowing we live in a divided world and a divided nation and the division that is in our world and in our nation ever threatens us. Uh, when Nancy saw the tie I was wearing this morning, uh, I said, you see my Christmas tie? She said, I just thought you were making a political statement. No political <laughs> statement here, sorry. Uh, this is just a Christmas tie, okay? Uh, that's it. Uh, constantly, constantly the division in our culture uh, pressures us as God's people. And so it is upon us. It is our calling, our vocation, our duty, our responsibility to work very hard to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as he applies these great truths uh, of putting on the new man and putting off that old man, uh, he applies it immediately to our neighbor, our neighbor. Uh, the concept of a neighbor is all over the Bible uh, call your attention, first of all, to the Ten Commandments. Two out of ten. Two out of ten. Uh, speak of the neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 16, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Two out of the ten. Specifically, reference uh, the neighbor. But when Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, before Paul became an apostle, he was a Jewish rabbi, an expert in the law of Moses. And I think his training as a rabbi and his experience as a rabbi perhaps came out a little bit as he was writing in Romans chapter 13, Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If I counted right, he mentioned five, at least, of the commandments that deal with our responsibilities to our neighbor, to our neighbor. Now, we think of a neighbor as somebody who lives by us, 
Unfortunately, in today's world, we may not know our neighbor by that definition. Uh, we may not know them at all and certainly may not know them well. We also acknowledge the fact that just because someone lives next to you or owns property near to you does not mean that they are a friend to you and they might be a bitter enemy to you. This too was addressed in the law and by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. I bring these passages to you today so that you might understand that uh, how we treat our neighbor is given a lot of coverage in Scripture. It's a big deal. I think we can generally understand in a broad kind of way that our neighbor is our fellow man, not just the people whose property happens to join ours. Now, it includes them, don't get me wrong, but it's not exclusively about them. The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, for example, was given to answer the question as Jesus uh, dealt with this master of the law who came to him and he gave exactly what Matthew, what he gave in Matthew's account uh, concerning the greatest commandment being to love God and the second being like it, uh, which is to love your neighbor. And this master of the law asked him, who then is my neighbor? And that's where the parable of the Good Samaritan came in. Obviously, it's not just uh, the people next to us. Not even just our friends or maybe even people we like. It refers in a general sense to humanity, our fellow man, as we like to put it. But in our text today in Ephesians 4, Paul narrows the scope. Because he says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members, he says, of one another. And by introducing that phrase, we are members of one another, we know that we are talking about our neighbors in the sense of our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, those who are in Christ and we're in Christ and because I'm in Christ and you're in Christ and we both uh, are in Him, uh, then that means that not only are we members of Him, but we're also members of one another. And we especially apply that then to our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, fellow members uh, of the church. Uh, that's also an application we make. This, this passage is in keeping with our whole objective of keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we can't look at that, these passages like Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 25, uh, 22 and say, well, I'm off the hook then because the only people I have to be a neighbor to are God's people. Uh, no, the parable of Good Samaritan tells us that's not the case. Um, 
there's a church in a nearby community that to this very day has a sign. Now, in their defense, let me set the stage for you a little bit. Uh, it, you come up a hill and around a blind curve, and so you can't see when you're coming up the hill. And they put a sign there to caution everybody, but it's what's on the sign. Every time I see it, I chuckle because the sign says, watch out for church members. <laughs> see, you think the same thing. Visitors are on their own. <laughs> if you're a visitor, too bad. But now we are cautious for our church members. Oh, that, that, that's not the way. I'm sorry I'm blushing. That's not the way we apply this passage. It's not just that we're being neighbors to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and it doesn't matter how we treat everybody else. No, no, that's not the story. But this passage does primarily deal with how believers treat one another, especially how we in a church like Faith Baptist are supposed to treat one another as God's people. He mentions several things. I'm going to sum up in three general categories. I want to give a disclaimer this morning. I'm not going to be preaching to you as someone who has mastered all of this information and has learned to live by it. Uh, I have certainly, I don't have any trouble understanding what the passage says. It's the living it out part that I find a challenge. It, it, it's tough. There, we're going to cover some tough ground today. I didn't, I didn't write it. God did. The Holy Spirit. And He wrote it because we need it. And I'm going to preach it. But I want you to understand, I'm not preaching it as somebody who is... I understand what it says very well, okay? Don't get me wrong. I, you'll, I, I've got perfectly clear understanding. It, it's the living it out part that's tough. We'll see. He starts with what we say, things that we speak. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. <laughs> of all the potential things that could have been number one on the list, it's interesting that he says, stop lying. Stop lying. Uh, since we're dealing with a bunch of Christian people and, and good God-fearing church-going folk, we might think that this would be a matter of course. Well, of course, we don't lie. We're Christians. We're God's people. It's not that way, or this wouldn't be first on the list. Uh, lies are things that we tell others that aren't true because we don't want to tell them the truth, and Christians do that too. We justify it a lot of times because the truth hurts. And there's only so much truth sometimes that we can give out before a relationship might be busted all to pieces. And that's why uh, the Bible, I think, gives us this warning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Already, it's already given to us. We speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. The fact is that God's people need folks, all of us need folks in our life who can tell us the truth. All of us need people in our life that we can count on to be truthful. Whether it's about a haircut <laughs> or what. Sometimes it's easier for us to ignore the truth and to keep on in a relationship with someone even though uh, the relationship is not based on the truth. 
But then we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of a relationship do we really have if it's based on a lie? And it's not based on the truth. I'm telling you, this kind of thing can be brutal. And that's why the Bible warns us ahead of time, speak the truth in love. One of the things that God's people need, we need it as a church family, we need to be able to tell one another the truth, to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love, to have those conversations, tough though they might be, brutal that they might be. But at the end of the day, we've said it in love. He returns to what we speak later on in the passage in verse 29. He says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And he gives to us then a test that we need to take before we start talking, especially if it is a matter of truth. And the test is, first of all, the prohibition. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. If it is something that we are saying that we intend to hurt somebody, don't say it. That's as simple as it can be. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. If you're being vindictive, if you're being hateful, ugly, stop. Stop. And let me just say, by the way, in our modern humanity and modern culture, this doesn't just apply to what comes out here. A lot of times it applies to what comes out here too. It's a whole lot easier to let your fingers do the talking these days. (laughs) So I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I'm not on Facebook much, so if you want to put some of this stuff on response to it, just (laughs) send me a a text or an email because I won't see it if you're on Facebook. Uh, Be careful, be careful with what you say. If it's designed to hurt, don't say it. Don't say it. That's not the new man created in Christ talking. That's the old man. The old man is hateful and vindictive and mean and all he wants is to get even. So, the prohibition, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That is connected then with something that is good. Do I mean this for good? That's the first test. Is my intention to help and not to hurt? Is this good and not harmful? That's the first thing we need to ask. Is it good and not harmful? Second thing, that that which is good for necessary edification. The second question we have to ask about things that we have to say is, is it necessary? Is it necessary? And quite honestly, that necessity can come from either side of the equation. It could be something that someone else really, really needs to hear. It is necessary. It could be something that I really, really need to say. It has to be said. It's necessary. In order for this person to grow, in order for our relationship to grow, then this is something that we have to discuss. It has to be said. Is it necessary? 
And so the first one, do I mean this for good and not for harm? And secondly, is it necessary? There's a lot of true things that just don't have to be said. How many of you have struggled to teach that lesson to your children? Huh? How many of us have struggled to learn that lesson ourselves? Yeah. Don't have to say. Well, it's the truth. Well, is it necessary? Is it necessary? Is this something that I can just deal with? Is it something that I can just put under the blood of Jesus? Is this a chronic problem somebody is struggling with? Or is it just an occasional lapse? Is this something that if it's not brought under control is going to destroy our relationship or hurt the cause of Christ? Is it necessary? Is it good and not harmful? Is it necessary? Does it have to be said? And the third thing then, is it something that is going to edify and impart grace? Now, grace is the very opposite of legalism, by the way. Uh, legalistic thinking is based on the law. And listen, it doesn't have to be the law of Moses. It can be the law of Richard, okay? And I'm, and I'm not alone in that. It could, it, it could be the law of Wade or the law of whoever. We all have things that we have decided are right and wrong. There are our own personal code that we've decided to live by. And the problem is that a lot of times we think that everybody else needs to follow my code. But God didn't make me scorekeeper, and He didn't make you scorekeeper either. And sometimes we get bent out of shape about a lot of things that the Bible doesn't say much about at all. And so we have to ask ourselves, then the third test is, is this based on God's grace? Is this something that we can bring under the grace of God? Or am I really just been out of shape because somebody hasn't done what I think they ought to do is this something that relates to God's grace uh, I tell you this is an incredible passage folks and it helps us know a lot about when to say something and when not to say something and what to say and what not to say is it good and not harmful is it necessary Will it impart grace to others? Is it based on grace? What we say. You might think that's the toughest part of the sermon, but it's not. He moves from there to what we feel. Things we speak and things we feel. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. As with what we speak, he expands the things we feel a bit later in the passage. Let all, verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. A lot of feelings in that passage. It's inevitable that even in our Christian relationships, there will be differences. And we notice in this passage that anger is presupposed. Be angry is a presupposition. He presupposes that we're going to get angry. So if you get angry every now and then, number one I can say to you, give yourself a little bit of a break. All anger is not bad. 
God gets angry. Jesus was angry several times during his ministry here. There are some things God has designed us to be able to get angry. I've often used the example, if an intruder breaks down your door at midnight, ladies, you want your husband to be able to respond in anger that quick. When This is part of our defense mechanism. And that anger then is something that God has given us. And it's not always a bad thing. But it presupposes that, yes, we are going to get angry, but then it immediately tells us, be you angry and do not sin. And it tells us then how that we sin in our anger. Uh, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Maybe you've heard it said, I'm sure you have, well, don't never go to bed mad. I've been married to the same woman now for well over 40 years, and I wish I could tell you that we had never gone to bed mad. But uh, we have. We've stayed up most of the nights a time or two as well. But uh, how do you deal with anger? And the Bible tells us immediately it's more than just going, not going to bed mad. It is about dealing with anger immediately. You see, when the sun went down in the Jewish way of thinking, another day had begun. It was not the end of, of one day. It was the beginning of another. Sundown, a new day began. So when he tells us, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, he tells you, don't let another day start with you mad. That means we have to deal with it pretty quick. That goes against our human logic, as many things in the Bible do. Because you tell yourself, just like I tell myself, that I need to cool down a bit. Right? I'm too mad to talk about this right now. I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with this. I need to give it some time. You know, let things calm down a little bit where we can talk about it rationally. That's what I tell myself sometimes. That's how we justify being angry and sinning because the Bible says don't let the sun go down in your wrath. And as is typical with almost all sin, though we might try, there's a way that seems right to a man. We think it's going to work for us. The problem with this thinking is it doesn't work. We say, well, I'm going to cool down a little bit, and then we'll talk about it. So how does that work? Not very well. You try to cool down for a day, and you're still hot every time you think about it. And a day turns into two days, and then five days, and first thing you know, it's two weeks. And you know what? It hadn't got a bit better. It's got worse. Because every time you bring it up, you get more fired up about it. And then when you finally get around to talking about it two weeks later, man, somebody is going to get blasted by an avalanche of anger, buried, alive, hopefully. God says, deal with it. Immediately, quickly. Whatever cooling down period you give yourself can only last a sundown. And then it's time to talk. Anger needs to be dealt with quickly. When we get caught in that situation, we have to remember the truth of Proverbs 15 and 1, which tells us a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
And I bring that passage up because a lot of times in our relationship, one person is mad, but somebody else doesn't even know they're mad. And, and, and you get blasted by this, and somebody has shown up, and they're just full of anger, and you see it. How do you respond? Well, you can make it worse, but the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. An apology is always acceptable. An explanation may be helpful, but it may not. An explanation can sometimes help, but an apology is always a great place to start. You may not feel like you did anything wrong. You may not have done anything wrong. But you can still apologize because whatever you did or said has upset somebody else really, really badly. And at the very least, you can say, that was not my intention. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry I upset you. And you can say that sincerely because it's true. This is a brother or sister in Christ, a friend, maybe a lifelong friend, somebody you love, maybe a family member. Can you not look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but I upset you? nothing else we can say that a soft answer turns to away, away wrath if we don't deal with it quickly we tend to spread it around to others people then pick sides churches are split relationships maybe friendships that lasted for years are gone, reputations are ruined. And let's remind ourselves, the Bible says, do it, that when we don't do this, we give place to the devil. Why? Because the devil loves this stuff. He knows Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And the last thing that he wants the world to see from his children is that his peace works. He loves turmoil. He loves strife. He loves division. He loves hatred and emulations and variance and cruelty. He loves it. He loves it. The list itself that he calls on us is worth noting or brings into mind is worth noting. These is, this is what happens when we hold on to this anger and don't get rid of it. Bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. That's quite a list. These things can settle down in our hearts and they can last for decades. Give me a second. I had to deal with, as I was going through this message and uh, getting ready for it this week, I had to deal with the fact that uh, I was still mad at some people over some stuff that happened in 1982. Some since then, but the ones in 1982 was what really got on my mind. And the reason it got on my mind is because of people. They'd done some bad stuff to me and my family. They did. But they're dead. And I'm still mad. And the worst part of that is not knowing that I'm still mad at a dead person. The worst part is knowing he died mad at me. And I couldn't help but wonder if when I get to heaven, God's not going to have a kindergarten department. 
and he's going to sit me down with some of these folks that I've been mad at all my life. And he says, all right, kids, y'all are going to have to play together and be nice for a couple of thousand years before I let you go up to the big house. <laughs> Wouldn't that be just like God? I can't give you a scripture on that. I'm just telling you that's just the image that got in my mind. Why? Why do we hold on to anger like that? I, I don't know. Like I said, the old man loves it. But I bet I'm not the only one that struggles with letting some of this stuff go. When we don't, it creates bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. The end of it is that people who once loved each other can't stand to look at each other anymore. There's another way out. You know, God's shown me a few things. I'm going to share a quick story for you, not because I, I love uh, 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 the way this turned out. It's just a truthful story. I, I had a good friend, preacher friend. Uh, man, I loved then. I love him today. We were friends then. We're friends today. He came to me one time. He wanted to borrow my lawnmower. I had a lawnmower. And uh, I paid 10 whole dollars for it. I bought it off the side of the road. I did. This was many years ago. I paid $10 for it. And it was in about its third season. He needed a lawnmower. He borrowed it. He was gone for a few hours. He brought it, brought it back. And he told me, he said, man, it quit. And I can't get it started. He burned my lawnmower up. <laughs> and I paid $10 for that lawnmower. I was aggravated, but I decided, you know what, I'm not ever going to say anything about it. He's a good friend. He didn't mean to burn up my lawnmower. I only paid $10 for it. I'd mowed with it for three years. I'd got my money's worth. <laughs> it's not worth getting all mad, being upset forever. We love each other. We work together. We're men of God together. We serve together. It wasn't Bill or Jason. I can tell you that right now. It's not. This was long ago. Uh, if that guy called tomorrow and wanted to borrow my lawnmower, you know what I'd say? No. <laughs> We're good friends. We love one another. We work together. But we're not boring your lawnmower kind of friends anymore. <laughs> yeah, listen, we don't have to split the sheets over everything. We don't have to throw a relationship away. That relationship may change. It may take on some perimeters. This might not be a bar your lawnmower kind of relationship. That's okay. That's okay. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 and 20, But now are they many members, yet but one body, and the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. There's way too much in the body of Christ of saying, you know, I can live without you. There's way too much of that going on. We're members one of another, Paul says. And the eyes need the feet. And we can't say we can do without. Those relationships are valuable. Things we say, things we feel, now things we do. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need, 
And again, he returns to what we do later in the text to amplify our understanding of what not to do or what to do. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgive you. Now we might think like lying uh, that stealing might not make it into a discussion. These are a bunch of God-fearing Christian folk. Uh, But people I have seen many, many families torn up, torn apart because somebody got something that somebody else thought belonged to them. Christian people, it happens. When it comes to dirt and money and trinkets, by dirt I'm talking about ground, ground and money and trinkets, brothers and sisters in the flesh and sometimes brothers and sisters in Christ can be ripped apart. It happens and it happens a lot. And I'm not trying to poke anybody's sore spot because this is another one of those sore spots that's affected my own family just like it has yours. Sometimes God's people get a big blind spot when it comes to things that we think belong to us or that should come to us. And someone else think it belongs to them. I'm not even going to go today into uh, what all the things that I see walk away from church buildings over the years. I I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, Umbrellas come quickly to mind, you know. (laughs) If you need an umbrella, ask me for one. I'll go buy you one, okay? Just, you know. The Bible tells us don't steal. Just don't. Don't do it. It's hard to stay friends with somebody if you steal from them. So he says don't do it. And instead, he calls us to work, to make a living, and be generous, to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving with one another because Christ has forgiven every one of us for our sin against him. We could go further, but that's about as much as I can stand for one day and probably about as much as y'all can stand too. I want to close out today by saying it again. There's entirely too much. I have no need of thee in the Christian world today. It's too easy just to break those ties and sever that relationship and say, I don't need you in my life anymore. I'm done with you and be gone. It happens. It happens way, way, way too much. Instead, God calls us to be kind, to be tenderhearted, and to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Christmas is a season of giving. It is. Sometimes the best giving that any of us can give is the forgiven part. Maybe this Christmas, instead of wrapping up something and put it on a tree, maybe there's somebody you need to go to and say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Maybe somebody that you need to say, you know, this this really hurt me, but I've forgiven you. You know, the gift of forgiveness is a great gift to give because the primary beneficiary, beneficiary of that gift is the one who gives it. The one who gives it. Just letting it go. I know I have tromped around on a lot of tender spots today. I hope you understand that some of those tender spots are are in here. Hope you do. Because this business about keeping the unity of the Spirit is hard work. 
And it requires us to do some tough stuff. But remember the reason for it all is pointed out to us even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. The reason for it all was nailed up on a skull-shaped hill outside the city of Jerusalem where Jesus Christ shed His ruby royal red blood for you and for me. Why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. I hope you have. If you haven't, there's not a better time than today for you to receive Christ Jesus as your Savior. He died for you. He died that He'd forgive you of your sins. And this morning, that may be exactly what you need to do, is receive Christ as your Savior. You may need to follow Him in baptism. You may be looking for a church home that preaches the Bible and tries to live it. Even though we all fall short, we all know at least what the Bible says and we believe it. And we ask God to help us in our unbelief. And that's the kind of church we are. If that's what you're looking for, then you'd fit in right well here. I don't know what's on your heart. But God does. As Brother Bill comes in and prepares for our invitation, this will be your time to respond. Let's stand together, please.